We cannot do better than begin this chapter by transcribing the opening words from chapter 1, book 3 of Calvin's Institutes. We are now to examine how we obtain the enjoyment of those blessings which the Father has conferred on his only begotten Son, not for his own private use, but to enrich the poor and needy. And first it must be remembered that as long as there is a separation between Christ and us, all that he suffered and performed for the salvation of mankind is useless and unavailing to us. To communicate what he received from the Father, he must, therefore, become ours and dwell in us. The sum of all is this, that the Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ efficaciously unites us to himself. The satisfaction of Christ rendered absolutely certain the salvation for those for whom he transacted, whose federal head he was. Yet something farther was necessary to make his people the actual participants of it, in the language of Acts 26.18, the Holy Spirit must be sent to open their eyes to turn from darkness to light and the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith. The beneficiaries of Christ's meditorial work entered this world in a state of guilt and depravity, and it is the peculiar office of the Holy Spirit to bring them into a state of li life and liberty. The persons of the Godhead have shared and distributed the whole work of the salvation of the elect amongst themselves into three several parts. Election is the approbation to the Father, redemption to the Son, the application of both election and redemption to the Spirit. And here again we reach a vitally important aspect of truth concerning which few today have any life. We show in chapter 10 conclusively, we hope, that the efficacy of the atonement has not been left an open question that the full accomplishing of God's design therein is not in any wise dependent upon man. What we would now press upon the reader is that the same God who ordained the end also ordained all the means whereby that end is infallibly reached. The end God had before him was the salvation of his people, their ultimate glorification, their being fitted to spend eternity in his holy presence. The means whereby that end was to be reached are the meditorial work of Christ and the operations of the Holy Spirit. As the three persons of the ever-blessed Trinity are undivided in their essence, so they are perfectly unanimous in their will and working. Therefore, those who have an interest in the good will of the Father and the redemption of the Son are likewise the subjects of the Spirit's gracious influence. It is a great mistake and a serious error to separate the present mission and ministry of the Holy Spirit from the atonement of Christ just as it is to contemplate the sacrifice of the Son apart from the purpose of the Father. All of the three divine persons concurred in the terms and arrangements of the everlasting covenant. It is the spatial work of the Spirit to make effectual unto the souls of God's elect the gracious purpose of the Father and the meritorious purchase of the Son. That which Christ did for his people, the Spirit stands pledged to make good in them. The Holy Spirit has been sent here to free those captive for whose liberty Christ paid the Father the ransom price. This the Father promised his Son on condition of his performing the work assigned him. It needs to be stubby board in mind that all the promises in him, that is, in Christ, are yea and in him amen, 2 Corinthians 1.20, and therefore the promises made to Christ's seed recorded in Scripture are but the transcripts of the promises which God first made to their head, see Titus 1.2. Let such passage as Isaiah 44.3, Ezekiel 36.25-27, and Joel 2.18 be read in that light. Salvation is of the Lord, Joel 2.9, entirely so, from beginning to end. 
It is God's great salvation in its origination, in its affectation, in its application, and in its consummation. Man contributes nothing to it whatsoever. All the Trinity are concerned and engaged in it. The Father is the author of salvation from sin. Christ the purchaser, the Spirit the conveyor. It is the Father who begets the elect, James 1, 17, 18. Yet they are declared to be the seed of Christ, Isaiah 53:10, while they are born of the Spirit, John 3, 6. Though it has many aspects and may be considered from various angles, nevertheless it is one and the same salvation. It is the third aspect of it we are here contemplating, namely the satisfaction of Christ made efficacious by the infallible application thereof to God's elect. To take this up in detail, let us note number one, the Holy Spirit's office. What we wish to look at now is the particular relation which the Holy Spirit sustains to the economy of the redemption. In this, he is subordinate to Christ the Mediator. There are a number of passages which clearly teach this. John the Baptist declared concerning Christ, he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit, Mark 1.8. A communication of the Spirit was to be the distinguishing mark of the Savior's ministry, in respect of which he would prove to be greater and mightier than the herald who was sent to prepare his way. In John 20.22, 20, we find the risen Redeemer imparting this divine gift to his apostles. He breathed on and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. In Revelation 3.1, he is spoken of as he that hath the seven spirits of God. These and other passages which might be quoted show that in the administration of the everlasting covenant, the Spirit is now subject to Christ. Hence he is called the Spirit of Christ, Romans 8, 9. That the Holy Spirit should be subject to Christ, that the Savior should direct the Spirit's operations, was promised him in the everlasting covenant. In Acts 1, 4, he is referred to as the promise of the Father. Observe now, when John the Baptist's pre prediction was fulfilled and Christ baptized his people with the Holy Spirit, Peter explained the supernatural phenomena attending it by saying, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of his Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear, Acts 2.33. So again in Galatians 3.14 we read that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So too we read that believers are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, Ephesians 1.13. In the next place we would point out how that Christ has actually purchased the gift of the Holy Spirit for his people, that his coming to the redeemed is one of the consequences or fruits of Christ's atonement. First, this is clearly implied in John 7.39, But this spake he of the Spirit which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not, parenthesis, given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Whether we understand the glorified is referring to Christ's death, John 13.31, or to his exaltation, 1 Timothy 3.16, the coming of the Spirit is clearly a result thereof. By this we are able to understand that the obedience of Christ was a meritorious cause of God sending his Spirit to indwell his people. Again, we may note that Christ's communication of the Spirit to his apostles in John 20.22 20, was not till after his blood had been shed. Again, observe the double that in Galatians 3.14, following Christ being made a curse for us in verse 13, it is the relation of cause to effect. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your heart. Galatians 4, 4, 6. Here we have three things. The Son being sent forth to redeem God's elect. This, that they might receive the adoption of sons. In the consequence thereof, the Spirit being set into their hearts. The elect were adopted into God's family before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Hence they are sons. Galatians 4, 6. And this before they received the Spirit. The Spirit is not given to make them sons, for all the members of Christ were written in the book of life as sons and daughters before sin existed or time began. No, the Spirit was given to them because they are sons, and that as meritorious gift of Christ purchased by his redemption. To sum up this point, the choicest benefit we receive from God could not have come unless his justice had been fully satisfied and his favor procured by a sufficient sacrifice. It was the death of Christ which appeased the anger of his Holy Father and opened those treasures of grace which by reason of our sins had otherwise been shut up from us. Wondrously is this brought out in the Old Testament types. The rock, Christ, must be smitten before the water, the Spirit, could flow forth unto God's people. Exodus 17.6 The very design of the Spirit is to make manifest the fullness of God's love to his people and how could that be until God had demonstrated it at the cross? Romans 5.8 The Spirit is here to declare the means of salvation, and they are the obedience, death, and resurrection of Christ. We are now to consider the teaching of Christ on his paschal discourse on this most sacred and blessed subject. But the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, John 14.26, Christ keeps the treasury of grace in his own hands. He is so choice of it, that he would not entrust its administration to angels. Angels were employed to strengthen him, both at his temptation and in his agony in Gethsemane, and they are ministering spirits for the heirs of salvation, but they have not the custody of that which belongs, which brings them into heirship. Christ employs none but the Spirit to be his attorney and deputy in this world. The Spirit is sent in his name, but when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, John 15:26. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show unto you, John 16:13, 14. There are three things in these verses which need to be particularly noted in this connection. First, the Spirit would not speak of himself, but only that which he should hear. He was to come as the representative of Christ, and therefore he would reveal none other truth and communicate none other grace than what is in and by and from Christ himself. Just as Christ declared, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. I speak that which I have seen with my Father, John 8:28:38. so the Spirit would set his seal upon what Christ had taught. The Spirit was an equal participant in the counsels of the Father and the Son, being thoroughly cognizant of all that passed between them in the everlasting covenant. He has an infinite knowledge of their design, for he searches all things, yea, the deep things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.10. Therefore does he make intersection for the saints according to God, Romans 8.27. Second, he shall glorify me, that is, the Lord Jesus. As Christ sought not his own glory, but ever had the glory of the Father before him and all that he did, so the Spirit seeks not his own glory, but that of him whom he now represents. 
This is the mission of the Holy Spirit, the design of his being sent here, the work he has come to do. As the work of the Son was not his own work, but rather that of the Father who sent him, John 5.17, and in whose name he performed it, Luke 2.49. So the work of the Spirit is not his own work, but rather the work of the Son who sent him, and in whose name he doth accomplish it, John Owen wrote that. He shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. The things of Christ may be reduced to two heads, grace and truth. John 1.17 From Christ the Spirit receives these to his redeemed. He affectionately communicates grace and personally reveals the truth. Just as Christ declared, The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. John 3.35 So hath Christ delivered all his interest into the Spirit's hand. Two great things accrue to us by Christ, acquisition of redemption, application of redemption. The one is wrought by his death, the other by his resurrection life. The one was procured by him immediately, the other is secured by the Spirit immediately. Number two, the Spirit regenerating. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit, John 3, 6. And what is to be born of the Spirit? It is to be vitally united to Christ so that he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.17. Therefore it is to be made the recipient of eternal life, for God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, 1 John 5.11. And this is given to us on the ground of Christ's satisfaction. This is brought out plainly in John 3, though nearly all writers on that chapter have quite missed the point. There we find our Lord pressing upon Nicodemus the imperative necessity of the new birth. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. The Pharisee was quite nonplussed and asked, How can these things be? Christ's reply is found in verses 14 through 16. Now to say Christ here taught that regeneration is effected by faith in him as lifted up is to miss the main point in his words. The key to those verses lies in connecting the must of verse 14 with the must of verse 7. To be born again is to be made partaker of a new life. It is to have eternal life. Now the very design of Christ being lifted up and of God's love in giving him was that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 15. But no man could be born again. None could have eternal life save as the result of a full satisfaction having been made to the claims of the holy and righteous God. Except the corn of wheat fall on the ground and die, it abideth alone. John 12:24. The Holy Spirit could not regenerate except on the ground of the atoning death of Christ. Let us present some further proofs of this. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8:2. In verse 1 we read that believers are exempt from all condemnation because of their legal union with Christ. In verse 2, we are shown the fruit of this. The Holy Spirit makes it good to the soul in a vital way. The law of the Spirit refers both to his authority and power. But what we would call spatial attention to is that in the economy of redemption, the authority and power of the Spirit is of life in Christ Jesus. In other words, the Spirit communicates to God's elect the very life which is in the mediator. The gift of God is eternal life, though or in Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23. In Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead, Colossians 2.9. Therefore the Spirit both resides in and is dispensed by him. 
And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit of life because of righteousness. Romans 8.10 Because our union with Christ, uh, the whole body of sin, C66 and 7.24, is legally dead. The spirit here refers to that which is born of the spirit, and that is life, and it is the life because of righteousness, namely the righteousness of Christ. The meritorious ground on which the Spirit imparts life to us is the satisfaction of Christ. I live because Christ died and rose again for me. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life, Titus 3, 5-7. Nothing could be plainer. Here, on the ground on which the Spirit regenerates, is clearly referred to as Redeemer's mediation. Many have wondered how it was possible for the Holy Spirit to take up his abode in a fallen and depraved creature. He could not do so but for one thing, namely, that the depraved creature has been legally cleansed by the precious blood of Christ. Beautifully was this foreshadowed in the Old Testament types. The oil, parenthesis, emblem of the Spirit, 1 John 2, 20-27, Parenthesis, was always placed upon the blood. See Leviticus 14, 14, 17. Another beautiful type is found in Psalms 133:2, Like the precious ointment upon the head that rins down upon the beard, Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. Here Aaron foreshadowed our great high priest, receiving such a plenitude of that which spoke of the Holy Spirit, that all the members of his mystical body partook of the same. It is to this that Hebrews 1.9 refers, Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Here the mediator is in view as the words thy God plainly show. Though he, by virtue of his humanity, being taken up into union with the second person of the Godhead, has been anointed above his fellows, yet as they, as his fellows, receive the same gracious and holy unction as he did. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrew 9.14 This verse brings before us another aspect of the believer's regeneration, namely the purging of his conscience so that he may worship God. It is the Spirit who removes from the conscience the intolerable load of guilt by giving him to see that Christ bore it away from him. But what we would here emphasize is that this gracious operation of the Spirit is attributed to, is based upon, or is one of the fruits of the blood of Christ. Now Christ, as a mediator, obtained for himself a right to all the elect. All mine are thine, and thine are mine. John 17.10 They are his peculiar people, Titus 2.14 Thus at God's appointed are, Christ is entitled to claim each of them for himself. This right he exercises, when according to the determined counsel of God, the time for gracious visitation of every one of the elect is come, he actually delivers them at his, as his property by an outstretched arm. And why should he not, seeing he can easily affect it by the power of the Holy Spirit, turning and inclining their heart? It is credible that he should suffer those who are his lawful right to be, to remain the slaves of Satan. Shall he suffer any of those to perish whom he purchased for his own possession by his precious blood? Christ himself has taught us thus to reason. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. John 10:16. Because these sheep were of 
right his property, it therefore behooves becomes him actually to lay hold of them as his own and bring them into his fold. Written by eight Witsuas. This is done by the Spirit. To sum up this point, the coming of the Spirit in regenerating power to God's elect is both a covenant promise and an atonement purchase. The cause of the Spirit's working is jointly from the Father and the Son, and only as this is maintained do we ascribe the glory which belongs to both the virtue of the Spirit's operations. The Spirit works from the Father's decree, Second Thessalonians 2.13, and the Son's redemption. In other words, He is sent to effectuate what was determined upon in the everlasting covenant. To all the Father elected and to all for whom Christ died, the Spirit is given. The Holy Spirit is the bond of union between us and Christ. We are united to him because we have the same spirit Christ had. There is the same spirit in head and members, and therefore he will work like effects in him and in you. If the head rise, the members will follow after, for his mystical body was appointed to be conformed to their head. Romans 8.29, written by T. Manton in 1660. Number three, faith imparted. That faith is, in some sense, essential unto salvation, it would, with an open Bible before us, be worse than idle to deny. But the important question is, did Christ purchase the gracious operations of the Spirit and all his fruits for those for whom he died? Or did he effect by his sacrifice nothing more than the removal of legal impediments out of the way of salvation, leading them to provide their own faith and repentance? That Christ must have purchased these should be clear from the fact that in their natural condition the elect have no power to furnish any spiritual graces. It has been rightly pointed out that the scriptures everywhere ascribe the whole ground and cause of our salvation to Christ. But if the differentiating grace which distinguishes the believer from the unbeliever is to be attributed to any cause external to Christ's mediation, then that cause, and not his redemption, is the real cause of salvation. A. A. Hodge that faith is necessarily in order to salvation is clear from such verses as Acts 16.31, Romans 1.16, and so forth. God never gives the one without the other, therefore both are inseparably connected in his eternal purpose thereunto. God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit, parenthesis, in the new birth, and belief of the truth, Second Thessalonians 2.13. Yet it is a mistake to say that faith is a condition of salvation in the sense that paying for an article is a condition of obtaining the same. Every condition to the right of salvation has been fulfilled for us by Christ. Faith is rather the connection between the soul and God's salvation in Christ, and that connection is made by the Holy Spirit. The various steps in the outworking of God's eternal purpose are set forth in Romans 8, 29, and 30. The actual application of redemption commences with the effectual call of the Spirit, by which the elect are brought out of a state of nature into a state of grace. There are two chief errors in connection with saving faith. First is that the fallen man is the author of it, that it is the product of the creature's will. This is a horrible delusion which must be firmly withstood. A man cannot believe. Believing in Christ in a spiritual and saving way is a result and fruit of the life communicated to the hearer. Christ declared that no man can come to me except the Father which let me draw him. John 6.44 This is accomplished in and by the Spirit's regeneration. It should be noted that John 1.12 is explained in 1.13 and that as that John 3.15.16 are preceded by John 3.6.7 Those who are born again believe. Those who believe have been born again. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is begotten of God. 1 John 5.1 
a second error in separating the Spirit's communication of faith from the merits of Christ's sacrifice. Why did we at first believe? Why do we still exercise that faith and walk by it? Only because it was covenanted for on our behalf when Christ undertook to die for us. It should help us to pray better, Lord, increase our faith when we remember at what cost that faith was procured for us. And certainly this alone will keep us from one of the subtlest of all Satan's snares, pride of faith. How easy it is to live proudly on faith. Faith will do as well as works for Satan's purpose of leading us to give to man that glory that is Christ. Parenthesis from Papers of the Sovereign Grace Union Conference, 1923, in the parenthesis. In order that Christ may have all the glory, even for our believing in him, it is most necessary to recognize that faith is not only God's gift, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, parenthesis, and therefore while we are saved through faith, we are not saved for faith, and that this faith is of the operation of God, Colossians 2.12, that is, of the Spirit's working, but also that the Spirit imparts it on the ground of Christ's redemption, that is, that Christ merited it for us. It is because Christ appeased God's wrath and removed the obstacles from the outflow of his mercy toward us that the Spirit is free to work in us. This is clearly stated in 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. To them that have obtained a like precious faith with us in the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, God has treasured up all the stores of grace and gifts in Christ, and it is out of his fullness the Spirit takes, John 16.14, and we receive John 1.16. Only as this is held fast is the righteousness of Christ exalted and magnified. In Ephesians 1.3, we are told that God hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ, and not the least of these is faith. In Romans 8.32, the question is asked, He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Yes, with Christ, God freely bestows on us the Spirit, faith, repentance, and all that is needed for time and eternity. In the Philippians 1.29 we read, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. In 1 Peter 1.3 it is said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us. It is as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that God begets us. Salvation and all the blessings accompanied were proposed, promised, and purchased long before writer and reader first saw the light of day. Those for whom Christ died have an indefeasible right to what he bought for them, and that long before they came into actual possession of the same. If it be asked, this being so, why did not the elect enter upon the enjoyment thereof as soon as they were born in this world? The answer is because... God has reserved to himself the right and liberty to discharge the debtor when and as he pleases. As in the parable, some are called at the first hour, some at the third hour, some at the sixth and ninth, and some at the eleventh hour, Matthew 20. Section 4, Repentance Given. Him hath God exalted with his right hand a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, Acts 5.31. Impentance and unbelief are the thick clouds which dissolve under the blessed beams of the Son of Righteousness. Every spiritual glyph and blessing we receive argues or presupposes the vagarious work of Christ. The grace of God is given you by Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.4. It is by his having 
given himself for our sins that we are delivered from this present evil world, Galatians 1, 4. It is in him also we have obtained an inheritance, Ephesians 1, 11. Christ died to procure for us the substantive as well as an objective sanctification, which is accomplished by his spiritual indwelling us, Titus 2, 14, Ephesians 5, 26, and 27. It is because he has washed us from our sins in his own blood that he hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, Revelation 1, 5, 6. God makes us perfect in every good work to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13, 21. Thus all the graces of the Christian character and all the virtues of the Christian life which are wrought in us by the agency of the Holy Spirit are imparted through Christ and received out of his meritorious fullness. Then, well, may we join the saints in heaven in saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Revelation 5.12 Chapter 13 The Atonement, Its Results Having sought to show from Scripture the nature of the satisfaction which the Mediator offered unto God, and by virtue of his acceptance of the same, its certain efficacy to procure and secure all that it was ordained to accomplish, we are... We are now ready to contemplate in fuller detail some of the results which it has actually affected. By the results we mean the consequences which have flowed to the elect in their relation to God and his law. These are so many and so diversified that we shall not here presume and attempt to even enumerate them. Instead, following the emphasis of Scripture, we seek to direct attention into the principal effects only. Once the Lord permits the regenerated soul to obtain a clear grasp of these, Little difficulty should be experienced in apprehending the minor corollaries with which they are accompanied. God himself had a specific end in view when appointing the great atonement, and in consequence of its having been made, certain things are effectually fulfilled and accomplished by it. As we sought to show in the ninth chapter of this book, the supreme aim of God in the satisfaction of Christ is the advancement of his own decorative honor, and that by the manifestation of his glorious attributes therein. God's subordinate aim in Christ's satisfaction, which aim is subservient to and is effectual unto his ultimate intended, is the deliverance of his people from the curse and the restoring of them to his image and fellowship. To effect this, God has to be propitiated, sin expiated, and the elect sinner reinstated in a divine favor. Perhaps the most comprehensive single statement in Scripture upon the design and results of the satisfaction of Christ is found in 1 Peter 3.18. There we read that Christ hath also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Bringing us to God is a general expression for the accomplishment of the whole work of our salvation, both in the removal of all hindrances and in the bestowal of all requisites. More specifically, in order for the elect, viewed as fallen in Adam, to be brought unto God, it was necessary that all enmity between them should be removed. In other words, that reconciliation should be effected. So, too, it was necessary that the guilt of all their transgressions should be canceled. In other words, that they should receive remission of sins. Further, it was necessary that they should be delivered from all bondage. In other words, that they should be redeemed. Finally, it was necessary that they should be made both legally and experimentally righteous. In the four words emphasized in the closing sentences of the last paragraph, we have summed up the essential results which have accrued to the, from the satisfaction of Christ. As those results bear upon sin, it has been expiated. As they bear upon the elect, they have been emancipated. As they bear upon God, he has been propitiated. 
At least this statement should create a false impression. Let us at once add that the atonement produced no acts of change in God any more than do his acts of creation or providence. The efficient purpose existed in the divine mind from all eternity. He acted upon it from the fall of Adam as though the atonement was actually accomplished. The infinite justice and the infinite love which were exercised in the sacrifice of Christ were in the divine mind from the beginning. The effect of Christ's satisfaction was to render possible a concurrent exercise of justice and love in their treatment of the same person. As those four results named are of such incalculable value and importance, we shall devote a separate chapter to the consideration of each. Number one, reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, the gospel of grace which God has called his servants to proclaim is spoken of thus, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, verse 18, and hath committed to us the word of reconciliation, verse 19. This at once shows the great importance of having clear and scriptural views upon the mighty subject, for otherwise it is impossible to honor God in our preaching, which should ever be our first and chief concern, or to edify his people with wholesome doctrine. A mistake at this point seriously injures the whole of our evangelical ministrations and causes us to set forth a perverted presentation of God's saving truth. The realization of this ought to bow every minister of the gospel before God in deep humility, earnestly entreating him for divine light and wisdom, that he may be so taught of the Lord that the gospel trumpet may give forth no uncertain sound when it is placed to his lips. Far better not to preach at all than to preach that which is contrary to Scripture, dishonoring to God and injurious to souls. Let us now consider, A, its nature. The word reconcile means to bring together again those who are alienated, to reunite those who are at variance, to restore to amity and concord by removing that which hinders agreement and fellowship. It is most important to observe at the outset that the term reconciliation is itself objective in its signification. That is to say, reconciliation terminates upon the object and not upon the subject. This is clear from Matthew 5:23-24, where our Lord said, If thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there the gift before the altar, and go thy way, first be reconciled to the brother. This is the first mention of the word in the New Testament. Here the offender is not bidden to reconcile himself, but the person whom he has offended. The person who has done the injury is to make up the difference. He is to propitiate or reconcile his brother to himself by a compensation of some kind. Christ did not say, Conciliate thine own displeasure towards thy brother, but remove his displeasure against thee. The teachings of Matthew 5:23-24 is of basic importance in connection with our present inquiry. Its plain meaning is that the one who had offended should go and seek to appease the anger of the one who had been offended, obtaining his forgiveness, regaining his favor and friendship by humbling himself before him, asking his pardon, and satisfying him for any injury which may have been done him. In like manner, when Scripture speaks of God's having reconciled us to himself by the blood of Christ's cross, Colossians 1.20, it does not refer to a subjective change which has been wrought in our hearts per producing our laying down of all enmity against God and our turning to Him in loving obedience, but it expresses one of the cardinal effects or results of His having graciously provided and accepted an atonement for us, so that instead of inflicting upon us the punishment we so richly deserve, we are instead received into His full favor on Christ's account. Thus we read in Romans 11.15, For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, 
Here the reconciling of the world is contrasted from the rejection of the Jews, which must evidently be understood as signifying the extension of God's favor unto the Gentiles. In the application of the term to God, reconciliation has to do with that which is forensic. That is to say, it contemplates God in his character as the judge of all the earth, as the moral governor of the universe, administering law and maintaining order. It concerns our relationship to him, not as our creator, nor as our father, but as our king. Thus, to affirm that through Christ, God is now reconciled to his people, does not mean that there has been any change in either his nature, will, or dispensation. To so affirm would be blasphemy. No reconciliation means that transgressors of the divine law have been restored to the judicial favor of God through Christ having closed the breach which sin had made between them. Reconciliation affects no change in God himself, but it does in the administration of his government. His law now regards with approbation those against whom it was formerly hostile. There has been a change of relation between those whom Christ died and the judge of all. As this point is so little understood today, even by those claiming to be orthodox, we must amplify it a little farther. There is a great need for exercising caution here, as in everything which pertains to our conception of our great God. Unless we are on guard, our thoughts of him will be but carnal. When one human being is reconciled to another, there is an inward change. Ill feelings are removed and goodwill is restored. But it is not so with the Lord God. It is greatly dishonoring to him if we think of him as possessing anything which corresponds to human passions. Reconciliation with God does not mean a change of heart in him from an angry disposition to a friendly affection. Rather does it refer to an effect which has followed from that proper and full satisfaction which Christ offered to the violated law and offended justice of God. We repeat it is God in his character of judge who, insisting upon an atonement, has now no farther demand to make, and therefore is most properly said to be appeased or reconciled to his sinful people. In order to understand this better, let us next consider B, its implications. Conciliation is a state of peace, the mutual enjoyment of friendship. Reconciliation presupposes alienation and disfellowship. There is no occasion for reconciliation between parties who are in perfect accord with each other, but where that exists not, where instead there is a discord and enmity, then the need for them to be reconciled is real. Thus we say that the first implication in the term reconciliation is that there has previously been a state of alienation. The second equally clear implication is that there was harmony before the discord, that originally peace and amity existed before strife and enmity broke it, for reconciliation is the renewal of lost friendship, the reuniting of those who have been at variance. Thus, the one word reconciliation comprehends by implication the threefold relation which has existed between the elect and God, considered as their governor or judge. First, they were in happy fellowship together. Second, that fellowship was disrupted by the fall and sin produced mutual alienation. Third, as a result of Christ's satisfaction, enmity is removed, peace is restored, and God and his people are reunited. God and man were once dear friends. Adam was the Lord's favorite. Till man was made, it was said of every rank and species of earthly creature, God saw that it was good. But when man was made, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Genesis 1.31 God expressed more of his favor to him than to any other creature except the angels. 
Man was made after his own image, Genesis 1.26. He was fitted to live in a delightful communion with his maker. Man was his viceroy, Genesis 1.27. God entrusted him with the care, charge, and dominion over all creatures, yea, he was capable of loving, knowing, or enjoying God. Other creatures were capable of glorifying God, of setting forth his power, wisdom, and goodness, objectively and passively, but man of glorifying God actively. T. Manton, volume 13, page 225. Let it be carefully borne in mind that in Eden, Adam stood not merely as a private person, but as a representative of the race, and that the elect were all in him. The condition of Adam was happy yet mutable. Though created sinless, yea, upright, Ecclesiastes 7.29, yet was he capable of falling. Alas, how quickly he fell. God had forbidden him to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and warned him that in the day he did so he would surely die. But he heeded not. He apostatized, he disobeyed his maker, and dragged down all his posterity with him, Romans 5.12. By his fall, all his spiritual privileges were forfeited. He lost the image, favor, and fellowship of God. God drove him out of Eden and stationed the cherubim at its entrance with flaming sword to bar his return. Thus sin separated between man and God, Isaiah 59.2. He and all God's elect in him were alienated from the life of God, Ephesians 4.18. As a consequence of the fall and of man's becoming by practice a sinful creature, there was a mutual antagonism between God and man. Of man it is written, the carnal man is enmity against God, Romans 8.7. Of Christians in their unregenerate state, it is said, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Colossians 1.21, the hatred of the sinner's heart for God was fully manifested when he became incarnate. Though he was full of grace and truth, went about doing good, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, yet man despised and rejected him, and were not satisfied until they hounded him to death. Nor has the human heart changed one iota since then. Sin has placed God and man apart from one another, so that all harmony there was between them has been completely destroyed. By his sin man incurred the righteous hatred and wrath of God, which is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, Romans 1.18. That God is alienated from the sinner and antagonistic to him is as clearly taught in the scripture as is man's enmity against God. Thou hatest all workers of iniquities, Psalm 5.5. 5. God is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 7.11. Though the Lord be high, yet he respects to the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off, Psalm 138.6. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them, Isaiah 63.10. Herein, then, lay the need for reconciliation that the breach which sin had made should be healed, the anger of God appeased, and the peace and amity be restored. We are now ready to consider C, its effectuation. Many will not have it that the reconciliation is mutual, but God has been re reconciled to his people as truly as they to him. Both there must be, for the alienation was mutual. God was angry with us, and we hated him. As we have shown above, the scripture not only speaks of enmity on man's part, but also of wrath on God's part, and, and that not only against sin, but sinners themselves, and not only against the non-elect, but against the elect too, for we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, Ephesians 2, 3.
sin placed God and his people at judicial variance. We are the parties offending, God the party offended. Thus the alienation was on both sides, yet with the, this difference, that we were alienated in respect of affection, which is the ground and cause of divine wrath, God in respect of the effects and the issue of enmity and anger. Now for Christ to make perfect conciliation, it was required that he turn away the judicial wrath of God from his people. For this, it was necessary for Christ to offer himself a propitiatory sacrifice to God, himself bearing that wrath which was due the sins of his people. This great fact was plainly typed out in the Old Testament again and again. For example, when Israel sinned so grievously in the making of the golden calf, we find Jehovah saying to Moses, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them. Exodus 32.10 But the immediate sequel shows us most blessedly how that the typical mediator interposed between the righteous anger of God and his sinning people, turning away his wrath from them. Verses 11 and 14 Again, we'll read in Numbers 16 that the, upon the rebellion of Korah and his company, the Lord said unto Moses, get, get thee up from among the congregation that I may consume them. Verse 5. Whereupon Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer and put farther in from off the altar and put on incense and go quickly into the congregation and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Aaron did so, and we are told he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Verse 48. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, 
and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.